Well, I hope you all have a copy of the handout. As, as tonight we're looking at the topic, this is our ninth week of the Attributes of God. Again, we're going to go all the way to Thanksgiving on this study as we look at a different attribute every week because there's so much we can talk about about who God is. But tonight we're focusing in on the attribute of God, of God is truthful, the truthfulness of God. And as we start tonight, I want you to look at this scripture on the front page, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. It not only shows us tonight's attribute, but helps us see a big picture of what we need to remember in all of these attributes. 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true and His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. I can't think of a better scripture to pick to talk about God as truthful tonight than a verse that uses the word true three times, right? So we're talking about the truthfulness of God. But what I want to remind us as well, and I've said it over and over through the study, but it bears repeating here when we look at this verse. Friends, when we are trying to understand who God is, we are completely dependent upon his revelation of himself to us. We cannot discover God on our own. We cannot figure out God on our own. We can't get to God on our own. We are dependent on his mercy and revealing himself to us. And we see that in 1 John 5.20. Again, we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding. Friends, any understanding we have of the truthfulness of God or any attribute is not because we're smart or because we've got great minds. It's because God in his kindness to us has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And so I just want to remind us at the outset of this, I pray that studying the attributes of God leads us to thankfulness because it's, we're dependent upon him. God is opening our eyes in his grace through the work of his Holy Spirit, illuminating the text of the scripture that he inspired. He's showing us who he is. And as we think of tonight about God is truthful, I want to give you a quote from A.W. Pink to get us thinking on this. Here's what Pink says. It says, Far above all finite comprehension is the unchanging faithfulness of God. Everything about God is great, vast, incomparable. He never forgets, never fails, never falters, never forfeits his word. To every declaration of promise or prophecy, the Lord has exactly adhered. Every engagement of covenant or threatening, he will make good. And so you don't see the word true in there, but you see the whole idea of truthfulness all throughout that, that God is faithful that he is vast and he will never fail, never falter. He will do everything he has promised to do. And that's what we get to think about tonight. So turn to page two as we get our minds going around this attribute of God. Now, first of all, just as we get started, to remind us, there's two, two types of attributes of God. We spent the first about six weeks of the study looking at the incommunicable attributes, the attributes of God that he does not share with his creation. Things that are unique to God, like he's eternal, you know, that he is omnipresent. Now we're getting into the attributes of God that he shares. He communicates with us in part being the key. He has it in full. We have it in part. And the two we've looked at so far would all be, sometimes you call these like mental attributes. God's omniscience, omni-knowledge. He knows everything. And we saw in his omniscience that God fully knows everything all the time. But we clarified he doesn't know as we know. We have to learn. He just knows everything because he knows everything all the time. In the last week, we looked at his wisdom, and that's God always chooses what is best. And we see his wisdom in creation. We see it in redemption. We see it in the church, and we see it in the way he interacts in our lives. Well, tonight we get to another one of these, again, if you want to call them mental attributes, his knowledge, his wisdom. Now we come tonight to his truthfulness. And as we get to his truthfulness, I want to look at a definition for us of this, or even before the definition, just a big picture. Like wisdom, God's truthfulness is not something external to his character. Truthfulness is his very nature and his very character. We need to make sure we don't think of his truthfulness as something external to him. Go back to the very first week in the unity of God. If you remember, we had different charts 
And what it is not is a circle. Here's God and the attributes are all these like external things to him. That's not how it is. God is fully truthful at the core of his being. This is who he is. It's not something external, not something he grows in like we have to. This is who he is. He is true and he is truthful. And out then of his truthful character, his truthful words and his faithful actions flow. So God is always going to speak truth. His actions are always faithful because he himself is true and who he is. And think about that as we look at these definitions. Notice this pattern of what you see here between his character, he is true, and then flowing out of that being his truthful words <coughs> and his faithful actions. So here's the first definition. Let's look at what J.I. Packer has to say about this attribute. <coughs> Packer says, Truth in the Bible is a quality of persons primarily and of propositions only secondarily. So let me just pause there before we go on. When you and I speak of someone speaking truth, we're usually thinking of their propositions, their statements, their words. But he's saying when you think about truth in the Bible, it's more about the character, more about the nature, more about the heart than it is the words. The, the words flow out of a nature of this. So back to Packer's definition. Truth in the Bible is a quality of persons primarily and of propositions only secondarily. It means stability, reliability, firmness, trustworthiness, the quality of a person who is entirely self-consistent, sincere, realistic, undeceived. God is such a person. Truth in this sense is his nature, and he has not got it in him to be anything else. That is why he cannot lie. That is why his words to us are true and cannot be other than true. They are the index of reality. They show us things as they really are and as they will be for us in the future according to whether we heed God's words to us or not. And so just to get our minds around that, that third line there, God is such a person. Truth, in this sense, is his nature. This is the core of who he is. It's not external to him. Truth is his very nature. And out of that, his words and his actions flow. Tozer tries to get at the same thing. He says, God guarantees that he will never act inconsistent with himself. He will always be true to himself, to his works, <coughs> excuse me, and to his creation. We're going to see more about that in a minute, but he's getting at God as a standard. We don't compare God to anything else. His standard is himself on that. Bavink, who you've heard me quote before, who's a Dutch Reformed theologian a long time back, said this, it is an attribute of God's will as well as of his mind. It indicates both that God is a true God over against all false gods and that he is faithful to his promises. Scripture everywhere teaches God's veracity. We don't use that word veracity much, but it's another term that gets used for faithfulness or truthfulness. But this is God, an attribute of God's will and his mind. It's mental, but it leads to actions. Again, you have this balance here. of This is his character, his nature, and it flows. It's expressed in what he does and in what he says. And, of course, I don't think there's a week that don't quote Wayne Grudem on this because he's one of my favorite theologians. Wayne Grudem says this, God's truthfulness means that he is a true God and that all his knowledge and words are both true <coughs> and the final standard of Truth, And we'll talk more about that. It's not just what he does is true, but he is our standard of truth. Now, other terms that get used for this. And if you go back to older theologians, other writers, they use the term veracity for this. Any of you use the word veracity in your conversation with your family this week? Pr probably not. An older English word, we don't use it much. But veracity is another word that means truthful. You can use that tomorrow at work and see if anyone looks at you really funny, right? But you'll see it in writings. Faithfulness. This was get used by a lot. You, as you read about the attributes of God, some people use truthful, some use faithful. They kind of use these. Some people interchangeably own this one. Others would separate these out. They would treat truthfulness in a week and faithfulness in a week. But these are, to me, so interconnected, I don't see how to separate them because his faithfulness is dealing with his actions towards his people. But you can't separate that from his character, which is true. His true actions come out of his true character. So 
in my mind, I put them together. But no, if you read some others, they're going to separate them out. So if you pick up a book on the attributes of God, you may see a chapter on truthfulness and a chapter on faithfulness. Just realize that distinction there. Another term is reliability. Now, this is not my favorite word because reliability seems impersonal to me. And this may be just a quirk for me here. When I hear reliable, I think of a car or a washing machine. <laughs> you know, I think of mechanical stuff that's reliable. But it's a word that does get used here to mean that God does what he says he's going to do. He's faithful. And so it's an okay word on that, just not the word I tend to go to. So, so turn the page here because I want you to see, before we talk about the aspects of God's truthfulness, I want you to see just a quick overview of some passages that show us that God is true. Again, we're dependent upon his revelation of himself, and God has revealed himself to us as being true in all of who he is. And so let's look at a glance of these from Old and New Testament alike. Let's go back and start in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So here, faithful is used interchangeably with what we would today say truthful. He's a truthful God, but notice how it's described. He keeps covenant. God always does what he says he's going to do. And this is not just for the Israelites at the time, the Deuteronomy is written. This is for all generations. All of his people can experience his unchanging nature, can experience that he will always do what he says he will do. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. The rock, what a great image. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright as he. So God is faithful. He's without iniquity. He will never do anything wrong in his thoughts, his actions, his words. He is always upright because he's holy. He's God. He's perfect in all things. Psalm 119, verse 90, it says, Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands Fast Again, God is unchanging, and so his faithfulness is for all generations. Again, we've talked before about when God is immutable, God does not change. And how scary it would be if God changed. Because if God's not immutable, what if today he wants to keep his promises and tomorrow he doesn't? It would be a scary world for us to live in. But God is unchanging, and so he is always, never without exception, he's always going to be truthful across all the generations. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16. He who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Again, this is a name that's used to remind us of his character, to simply say that he is the God of truth. Jeremiah chapter 10 here, 10 through 13. But the Lord is a true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. And so here God is the true God as shown in contrast with the false gods. He is the living God. He's the one who made all things. And this is in contrast to all the false gods that people follow. They're going to be obliterated at his hand because God is the only true God, the only one who has established the world by his wisdom, and he is the one who is true. The book of Lamentations here, chapter 3, verse 22 and 23 we sing this sometimes in Psalms. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So again, this is important to us. God is immutable. God is unchanging. God is true in his nature. How can we know that God will show us as children new mercies today? Because God is true. God is truthful. He said he will give us new mercies every day. Therefore, we can believe when we get up tomorrow morning, no matter what happened today as his children, we can get up tomorrow morning with confidence. God has spoken truth. And when God says, my mercies are new every day, he means what 
he says on this. This is imagery of great faithfulness to us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 here. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What is our anchor? Not that we're holding on to God, but that he's holding on to us. We're so unfaithful to others around us and to the Lord, but he is faithful, he is true, and he is holding on to us. And so we can hold fast our confession without wavering because he who promised is faithful. That is our confidence and his truthfulness and his faithfulness on this. Now, specifically, as we think about this, realize, because we have Bruce Ware here back, if you remember some months ago, talking about the Trinity, God's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All these attributes apply to all the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not like, you know, God is the God of wrath, God the Father's wrath, and Jesus is merciful. No, there's no separation. God is fully all the attributes all the time. I want you to see just a glimpse of this where Jesus is, apl- is described as the truth and where the Holy Spirit is described as the truth, just as the Father is described as the truth that we've already seen. John chapter 14, verse 6, which we'll get to in our Sunday morning series in about a year, I think. But um, Jesus said to him, by the way, we're in John, we'll still be in John 8 this, this, this Sunday morning. We're, we'll get there. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here, the same descriptions that we've seen described of God the Father, described of Jesus here. He is the truth. Likewise, look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, and you'll hear it ascribed to the Holy Spirit as well. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. When we speak of God being truthful, this applies fully to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three in one, one in three, the Trinity. Now there's just a quick overview. If you want to get onto like a Bible study program or pull out one of your concordances and look through the word faithful or truthful, there's a lot more than what I just gave you right there. But that's just a quick overview of where you see a glimpse of the truthfulness of God in different parts of the scripture. Now let's look at what this really means. What are some of the, if you will think of aspects of his truthfulness. Number one, on the bottom of page three, that means that he is the only true God. Part of what it means that God is truthful is not just in his nature, but it's the fact that there are no other real gods besides him. He alone is the one and only true God. John chapter 17, verse three, which we'll get to in about a year and a half. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This contrast with the false gods. Contrast with the false gods in the Old Testament, the Baals and all the things that people worship. The contrast with the false gods that people worship at the time. The contrast with the false gods of today and other world religions. And then the contrast with the false gods of our culture, the materialism and the things that people run after. Up and against all that, there is only one true God worthy of our worship, our affection, our devotion, and that is the God of the Scripture. But that's not all that this idea of God being the only true God means we say that God is the only true God, that also means that he is the standard of what God should be. Now, follow me a minute on this one. If there was any standard beyond God, God would be below that standard. He'd be measured against that standard. If you look at what a perfect God should look like, it's who God is. Not because he's conforming to some standard imposed upon him, but because he himself is the reflection of perfection. So it's not that when we say God is perfect, God is true, we're measuring his truthfulness against some other standard. He is the measuring stick, and he is the measure, and he is fully the perfect one of all that, if that makes sense on that. He is the standard to which he himself conforms. There is no other standard on that. He is the only true God. Turn the page to page four here. The second thing this means is that all of his knowledge is true. Now, I want to elaborate a lot on this because it's very much connected to what we saw the last two weeks. I saw that God has all knowledge, God has all wisdom, 
But simply, if we add truthfulness to what we've looked at the last two weeks, this means that God has a true understanding of all things. He has a true understanding of every detail in the universe. He's not up in heaven going, I didn't realize that electron did that. Wow. And there's none of that with God. God knows every detail intimately, perfectly, to as minuscule of a detail or as big of a detail it can be. He has a true understanding of all things. That means God never realizes anything. God never has those aha moments that you and I have. You know, throughout our life, we're like, whoa, that makes sense. God never was up in heaven going, wow, that makes sense now. Because he fully knows everything all the time, and his knowledge of every detail is perfect and full and is true in all ways. That also means there, as you see in your handout, God is never mistaken in his perception or his understanding of anything. His knowledge being true means he's never mistaken. How often in our lives are you like, oh man, if only I had known dot, 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 right? Oh, I wish I had realized back then. God doesn't do that. Because his knowledge is unchanging. He's outside of time and his knowledge is true. He's never at a point where he's like, wow, I wish I had known that. I love, because we quote Job every week, so we have to make sure we get a Job passage in here tonight again. Job thirty-seven sixteen. Do you know the balancing of the clouds? The wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. God is the one who understands the balancing of the clouds. I was, I was on an airplane. I t- we took our kids up to Minnesota for a wedding this last weekend. And my kids got their first airplane ride. And watching their faces as we go jetting through the clouds. And when you get through the clouds, and you see the sea of the clouds. And we're like, we just flew through rain clouds. And we're above the rain clouds. And I, I don't remember which boy it was. And he goes, Daddy, it can't rain up here, can it? No, we're above where it can rain. And there's just a look on their face and the wondering of all that. God's knowledge of the balancing of the clouds and how that works is true and perfect. Our, as scientists, we struggle to understand how everything works. And yet God's knowledge is true and perfect. He knows perfectly true, without any discovery needed, how every detail of the entire universe works and what's happening in every heart and soul and mind at every point in time because his knowledge is true of all things. So if you have trouble sleeping tonight, you can ponder that, right? Number three, the other aspect, that means not only is all of his knowledge true, but all of his words are true. And this is so important to us. Because his very nature is truth, then all of his words are true. Now, why is there a picture of a well there? Well, one of my mentors years ago had a saying he would use a lot that was a, a good southern idiom. So if you're not from the south, I don't know if it'll, this idiom will work. But he used to tell us, his guys, he'd say, guys, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. You follow where he's going with this? You know, what's down in the well, he's speaking to us in our hearts. You know, if anger comes out of your mouth, it's not because something made it happen, because there's anger down in your heart. With a well, if you draw clean water, you don't, if there's muddy water at the bottom of the well, when you pull the bucket up, it's not going to be clean water. It doesn't transform. What comes up in the bucket, what's already down there. So now, we usually use that in applying it to help people think through how we handle situations. But God's nature, God is truth. And truth is not external to him. God in his nature is truth. Therefore, that's the well. What comes up out of the mouth of God has to be true as well because his nature is truth. Therefore, what comes out has to be true as well. It's impossible for his words not to be true because he himself is true. Only a holy, perfect, truthful God can only speak holy, perfect, truthful things. As a side note on all that, when I'm talking to couples or working, helping people work through issues like anger in their lives, I'll hear people say things like, well, I really didn't mean to say that to her. I really didn't mean to say that to him. Well, no, yeah, you did. 
it came out, you may wish you hadn't, but that's different than, you know, not mean to. You meant to say at the time because that's what was down in the well. That's what came up in the bucket. Side note, we'll get back to our topic tonight, but just realize that's true for us. It's true of God as well here. We see the truthfulness of God's words throughout Scripture. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 28. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. This is David's prayer right here, and David is claiming a promise of what God said he would do. And David can claim that promise because God's words are already, already true. And he's, in a sense, talking to God, saying, Okay, God, your nature is your words have to be true because you're true. Therefore, do this thing you promised to do because you have to because you said you were going to do it. Psalm chapter 12, verse 6 is a beautiful image. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in the furnace on the ground, purified seven times. What does that mean? God never has an insincere word. God never says anything half-heartedly. God never says anything without really meaning it. God is sincere in his words. God is pure in his words. His words are true because he himself is true. Psalm chapter 119, 160. The sum of your words is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Or Titus 1, 2. Paul's praying here and speaking of the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So even Paul, as he's greeting the, in the beginning of this letter here in Titus, his confidence is one who's experienced eternal life. His confidence is, this is he's experienced what God has promised. And he knows it's true because God cannot lie. That is his anchor in the midst of all this. Now, as a side note, it's on your hand over there. Thus we believe the Bible's inspired, infallible, and inerrant. Now, this is important for us. Because a lot of churches deny this today. I don't know how they call themselves churches, but churches deny this. The Bible is inspired. We talked about that in our last study on Wednesday nights. Inspired means it's breathed out by God. These are God's very words to us. This inspired is infallible. That means it cannot have mistakes in it. And it's an, and it's an errant. Same thing, there's no errors in it. The Bible is inspired, infallible, and errant. If we really believe that God in his nature is true and all of God's words are true, then it follows that the words that he inspired, that he breathed out, that he gave us in the scriptures are must be true words. But again, that's not where a lot of churches hold today. If I went to church for two years in college before the Lord kind of woke me up to the reality of it, and they thought the Bible was full of errors. And, I, and some of you heard me say this in my testimony. I talked to one of the pastors once about it. And I asked him, I said, if you guys believe the Bible has mistakes, why are you in ministry? And he said, Grady, we're here to teach college guys like you which parts of the Bible are true and which parts are false. You know, there's church, quote-unquote churches, that have that mindset. Friends, if God has messed up some things in the Bible and God can't keep the words of the Bible correct, how do we know that his promise for our salvation, our security, is one of the ones that's right or not? I would have no confidence. I would not be able to sleep at night if I thought God had made mistakes in his word. Because not only is that about the Bible, that has to do with his character. What's down the well comes up in the bucket. If God can't even preserve the copy of Holy Scripture the way it's supposed to be, how do I have any confidence in following him he is a true God, therefore all of his words are true. Therefore, his written word to us in Scripture must also be inspired, infallible, and inerrant. There's a soapbox issue. We'll move on on that one. Number four, this also means that God is the ultimate standard of truth. Friends, there is no higher standard. God is truth. God knows all truth. Everything God says and does is true. Therefore, God is our standard of truth. That means... We're not looking for some objective standard outside of God. If we want to know what's true, you think like God. So, friends, when we think like God thinks, as is revealed to us in Scripture, we're thinking true thoughts. We think thoughts that are contrary to what the Bible shows, 
we're thinking false thoughts because our standard is God himself, not some other standard. This also means that truth is absolute and not relative. We live in a day and age where it's really popular to think that truth is relative. My friends, truth is not relative because truth is God. God is truth. He is the standard himself. And so we don't get to decide what's truth. There's not what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. There is an absolute truth, and that is God. And everything else is measured against that. And even if people don't want to be measured against that in this life, when they stand before the judgment seat, that will be the standard of truth that everyone will one day face. So turn the page to, 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 to page 5. So we talked a lot through this study. These attributes of God are not just some theoretical things for us. These actually have very real profound implications for how you and I live on a daily basis. We'll talk more about some of these in your discussion groups tonight. But I want to think through just three ways this attribute should change how you and I live. Number one, it means that we must believe in God as he has revealed himself. We believe in God as he has revealed himself. Friends, we must follow God for who he is, not who we want him to be. Again, if we've talked before in some of these other attributes, our culture loves to elevate the love of God and minimize the wrath of God. We have a culture that wants to kind of put together a God of our own imagination. You'll hear popular TV preachers being interviewed and saying things like, well, I just can't imagine how a loving God would send anyone to hell. Or I know those people who have never heard the name of Jesus, surely God's going to give them a second chance. And you have all these people talking about a God that they've imagined. Friends, we can't imagine who we want God to be. We, we are dependent upon following him as he has revealed himself to be. Now, why is there a picture of a soldier reading a letter there? Imagine, some of this may be true for you guys, and some of you guys are former military. When you are away at war, and you're fighting, and that letter from home comes from your spouse, and you're reading that letter, you don't get that letter and put it aside and go, I'm imagining my wife is doing this today. And I'm imagining, no, you don't imagine what you think might be happening at home. If you're a soldier war, you take that letter and you mull over everywhere because you want to know exactly the truth of what is happening at home as your wife has revealed it to you of here's what's going on at home with the kids and the family. You're not creating an imaginary scene. You're reading what it really is. How much more so with God? God has given us his word, his letter to us of who he is, how the world is to work, how he interacts with us, who we are. And yet in our culture, it's so easy to push that aside and be like, well, I know it says that, but God really must be. And we concoct a God of our imagination. How foolish it would be for a soldier at war to imagine what's happening at home when he's got a revelation from his wife of what is happening at home. How much more foolish for us to ignore God's revelation to us and try to follow a God that we invent ourselves. So this attribute of God's truthfulness means he has told us the truth of who he is and it's not ours to pick and choose what we want to believe about him. He's shown us and we submit ourselves to it. Number two then follows, we gladly submit to the authority of his word. We gladly submit to the authority of his word. If we believe the Bible is God's words to us, which it is, we can believe it because God has spoken it. God is true. Therefore, we don't, we don't go to the Bible and judgment of the Bible. I like that. I don't like that. I was part of a small group one time where the group leader was like, okay, let's read this passage. What do you like about this passage? What don't you like about this passage? And I wanted to get him and be like, no, I don't care if you like it or don't like it. It's God's word. It sits in judgment on us. We don't sit in judgment upon it here. We gladly submit to the authority of his word. John 17, 17. Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Friends, if we want to be sanctified, we sit under the authority of the word and we gladly submit to it because it's God's truth to us that he has revealed. Or Psalm 119, verses 10 through 18. This is just a great prayer. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. 
I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your way. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes and may behold wondrous things out of your law. Friends, that needs to be our attitude towards the word of God. It's not saying we can concoct. We ask God for grace to give us a, a, a view and desire for the word of God like you see the psalmist articulating right there. If we really believe the truthfulness of God, that is what will happen in our hearts as we approach the word of God. Number three, we believe God's promises. Very simply, God will never break a promise. We can depend on him. He is faithful. He never, no, never, no, never will ever break his word. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Or Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Friends, what an anchor that is for us, right? God is not a man that he should lie. He will not change on this. You know, when we talked about his immutability, his unchangeableness. When he's spoken it, it will happen. Two theologians describe the reality of those verses this way. Herman Bavink again says, He is a perfectly reliable refuge for all his people. Friends, when we're in a storm, what a great anchor for us, that God is a perfectly reliable refuge for us. Or J.I. Packer, who I love in his book, Knowing God, which is out there in the, the resource library. If you don't have a copy, I'd encourage you to get it and read it. He says, how does God's faithfulness show itself? By his unfailing fulfillment of his promises. He is a covenant-keeping God. He never fails those who trust his word. And friends, this reality, though, can either bring hope but this reality can also bring fear because God is unchanging and God is truthful and God will do what he says. With that in view, look at what it says in the book of Joshua, chapter 23, starting in verse 14. God speaking says, And now I'm going to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Now, just pause right there. Okay? So context here, Joshua is speaking. It's the end of the book. He's reminding the Israelites, because if you imagine, there's probably fear in their heart. Our leader's about to die. What's going to go on? Where's going to happen? And Joshua points them back to the truthfulness, the faithfulness of God here. Not one word has failed. Look at how God has dealt with you. He's saying, not one of God's word has failed. God has truthfully done everything he's promised. All these have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Now, pick back up there on that third line. But... Just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, there's the good, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he's destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. So, friends, when we think about God's truthfulness and God keeping his promises, words being true, our minds go to the stuff that makes us happy. Our minds go to the fact, in the trials, God has promised he'll never leave me or forsake me. That's true. And the trials, God can give me joy because he's working all things for my good. You know, we, we, we anchor ourselves in those promises, and we should because that, there's hope in that. But, friends, the fact that God's words are true also means there's judgment promises as well. And he tells his people here, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. You'll perish quickly. Why? if you forsake the true God and start following false gods. And again, in our culture, the temptation for most of us is not to go buy a statue of a Buddha and go bow down to it. That's temptation in part of the world, but there's lots of false gods we follow called the American dream and prosperity and materialism and so many other things. And God's saying, if you forsake me, you can't demand these covenant blessings when you turn your back on me as well. This is where James Boyce, one of the founders of Southern, said, this faithfulness is the ground both of hope 
and of fear. And it is because God is true. He will do what he said he would do. So turn to page six as we wrap this up tonight. I want to remind us this is a communicable attribute. That means God shares this attribute with us in part. So how does he share this attribute with us in part? Well, simply stated, God calls us to walk in truth. God is true. He says, as my children, as my people, you also are to walk in truth. Second John chapter 1, verse 4 <coughs> says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. What's the Father commanded? That we walk in the truth. Now, that's a great imagery, but what does that practically look like? What does it mean to walk in the truth in our lives? It means that we rely on God's strength and the grace he provides. Friends, we can't walk in the truth in our own strength. Can't say that enough. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we trust Christ, not only are we saved, but he gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives us strength to walk in truth. He's not commanding us to do something we can do in natural strength. He's commanding us to do something that we can do in dependence upon him with the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As we rely on God's grace and the strength he provides, what does walking in truth look like? There's a lot of things we could say. I've just tried to give you three to get us thinking on that. Number one, it means we speak truthfully. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practice and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Friends, if we are in Christ, one of the fruits, one of the evidences should be we put off lying, we put on righteous speech, truthful speech here, because we're being conformed to the image of Christ here. I love what Wayne Grudem says on this one. He says, when we lie, we dishonor God and diminish his glory. Now, let me just stop there. So when we lie, we typically are, are thinking about how it's hurt someone else. But the greatest offense when we lie is an offense against God, even more so than the person we've lied to. So when we lie, we dishonor, dishonor God and diminish his glory. For we, as those created in God's image, are created for the purpose of reflecting God's glory in our lives or acting in a way that is contrary to God's own character. Remember the word Christian, we're supposed to be like little Christ. We're supposed to be being conformed to Christ's image. And when we lie, when we do not speak the truth, is not only a sin against the people we're lying to, it's ultimately dishonoring God because we're to be reflecting His glory, His character, and His holiness, and we fail to do so, and we offend Him in the process. And so the questions we have to ask ourselves is, do we speak truthfully in all things? When we describe what happened to us, to someone else, are we speaking truthfully, or do we have a tendency to exaggerate? Which, by the way, exaggeration is a lie. In our culture, it just seems more acceptable to just exaggerate, but it is a lie. It's not speaking the truth. When we're dealing with business commitments, do we keep our word on those things? And how about in the church when someone says, will you pray for me? Oh, sure, I'll pray for you. Are we really speaking truthfully? Are we really planning on praying for that person? Do we say it because that's the right thing we're supposed to say when we see someone? You know, this is not just the blatant lies we typically think of. This goes much deeper into the heart of are we speaking truthfully in all things? Second of all, walking in the truth, this communicable attribute of God, us showing truthfulness means, number two, we show a love for the truth and a holy hatred for falsehood. And I'm not meaning we go on a rampage against someone who lies to us. That's not what I'm meaning. We obviously are to show grace and speak the truth and love to people. But in our hearts, we should detest falsehood. Proverbs 13:5. the righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. And so I was thinking about this. What keeps coming to my mind this week is how about our entertainment choices? Because it's so easy to, to start not caring about sin that we're exposed to. And if we really love truth, shouldn't we in our hearts love to see truth magnified and to see falsehood put away? And yet how often in the music and the movies and the TVs and the books we read and all that stuff, 
Do we even laugh at the fact that people are lying? Do we laugh at falsehood and the pain of it all? And I can't help but think that's a scheme of the enemy because if it gets us laughing at sin, we're now making light of something that God has said is very, very serious. Do we have a love for truth and a holy hatred in our heart to where when we hear lies, even in jest and movies and TV, there's something inside us that cringes going, this is not the way God designed things to be. And then number three, we should strive to learn more about God and his creation. So obviously we want to learn more about God, but also do we want to learn more about his creation? God has given us the ability to learn. He's given us the ability to study and to learn more, and he's revealed himself to us. There's common grace. That's why we can study biology and mathematics and all these things, because God's creation is so complex. And so my hope would be that if we understand that God is true and has all truth, and he in his kindness has chosen to allow us to learn that truth, I pray that would drive us to learn more, not just about him, but about his world as well. A lot of us shy away from that because it takes work. Learning is a discipline just like any other discipline in that. And that in view, I want to close with this quote before we go to our small groups from A.W. Pink. It's just a closing challenge for us as we think about God is truth or God is truthful. Here's what Pink said. It is one thing to accept the faithfulness of God, the truthfulness of God, as a divine truth. It is quite another to act upon it. God has given us many exceedingly great and precious promises, but are we really counting on his fulfillment of them? Isn't that again? God has given us many exceeding great and precious promises, but are we really counting on his fulfillment of them? Are we actually expecting him to do for us all that he has said? Are we resting with implicit assurance on these words? He is faithful that promised. Friends, that's my challenge to myself and to you all as well. Is again, the fact that God is true and God is truthful isn't something arbitrary. It should be reflecting our lives. Do we trust God? Do we have peace in our heart? Are we claiming the promises of God for all the different things we're facing and actually believing that God didn't just say it, but he is going to do all that he promised? So I hope you'll think on that one this week. Turn the page to page seven. We're about to divide up into our groups here in just a minute and want us to have some things to think about in this and discuss in our groups. First question, how should the attribute of God's truthfulness encourage us in Bible study. So thinking here, we talked about about what the Bible is, God's truthfulness, God's words. How should this attribute of God motivate us to be disciplined in our Bible study? Number two, how should the attribute of God's truthfulness encourage us to pray? What impact does this have on our prayer life? Number three, do you agree that this attribute is both grounds for, for hope and fear? In other words, does the fact that God is truthful to keep his promises, does that give us both hope and fear and how so? Number four, how does God's faithfulness to keep his promises help you through trials? Because I know as I look around the room, so many of you have walked through some really difficult journeys even in the last year. How has this attribute of God, that God is truthful and his promises are true, how has that helped you in the trials you've faced through? And encourage one another. Are there some promises from the word of God that you have been clinging to in the midst of your trials? And you're going, God is faithful, I'm clinging to this promise it perhaps will encourage someone in your group who's in the midst of a trial right now to have a promise from the Word of God that they can cling to as well. So what promises do you cling to when life is tough? Number five, how is God dishonored when his people do not speak truthfully? I alluded to this with that quote from Wayne Gruden, but get a little bit more practical in your groups. How is it that when we lie, obviously we sin and hurt someone else, but how is it that God is the one who's most dishonored when we do not speak truthfully? Number six, in light of all this, why then is careless and dishonest speech so common among believers today? If God is so serious about it, why is our speech among believers? I'm not, I'm not pinpointing any of you guys, okay? This is not like, ooh, I'm thinking, I hope they're thinking about this. This is not directed at any of you guys. I'm just speaking in general what I see in, in quote-unquote Christian, Christian culture in America. Why is our speech so careless in light of all that we've seen? Number seven, how should the attribute of God's truthfulness encourage us to keep learning 
both about God and about the world in general. And then what I do every week, what songs do you know that include God's truthfulness and faithfulness? You can't use greatest life faithfulness because that's probably the first one that comes to everyone's mind, right? So beyond greatest, I just spoiled it for you. You're like, man, I have my answer. Beyond great is thy faithfulness, what are some other songs because that, that do this? Because again, the reason I ask this question is our worship songs reflect our understanding of who God is. And what we sing shows a lot about our heart's understanding of the nature of God. So it's good for us to think through, how am I affirming this revealed attribute of God of his nature and the way I sing to the Lord? So I want you to wrestle with some of those things. We're going to divide up into groups. Dave's in the back. We'll get a group going over there. CJ will get a group over here. You good back there, Dave?